0: We're looking today at some decisions that we make, and there was a old farmer, kind of a tightwad, and he was uh, talking to a hired man that he had uh, picked up for the farm. And he was exhorting him because this hired man was going out to court a young lady, and he was taking a lantern with him. And so the old man said, "He said when I was young and I was courting a lady." I went in the dark. I didn't take a lantern with me. We didn't waste the oil. He says, yeah, and look what you got. Yeah, when we make decisions, we want to make them in the light. You need to make decisions in the light. And the word of God comes to us as light. We looked over the last couple of weeks in this series on on wisdom. We saw that by getting into the press that the woman with the issue of blood, the word of God said that she got into the press behind Jesus we said we want to get into the press. We want to get, do these things that are necessary to get into press. First off, pray. pray. Not just pray and ask God for things, but to pray and have a relationship with God. To have a discussion with Him. Read the Word of God. Sit down and read the Word of God. Have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. We need to develop those ears. Study. Meditate on the Word. Study and meditate on it. Don't just... Don't just uh, read it, but study it. Get some of it on the, down on the inside of you so that you continue to meditate and meditate and meditate and go over and go over and go over what is written in it. And then speak it. Say it. Say it with your mouth. Get into the press, we said. Talked about developing our hearing. We need to recognize the voice of God better. We need always to, to be developing that. Sometimes people hear something, but are not sure if it's, is that really God? Was God really saying that to me? Once he says it, we know he says it, we need to retain the things that he says, and we need to refine our hearing. We can hear even better. We look at some of the Bibles, some of the people in the Bible, and the things they heard from God were astounding. We think, wow, how did they hear that? We can do that too. In Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 5, you remember this, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Down on the inside of you is counsel from God. But you need to draw it out. We talked about wells. We talked about wells and rivers. Last week we were looking at the wells and rivers. On the area of the well. It says, therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you draw w- wells. We looked at and compared our what was in our well with faith. That there are two gauges that will help you determine where your faith is. Joy was one. What was the other? Peace. Joy and peace are two gauges that will tell you how you, well you're doing on your faith. Always be looking at those those just like on your car, you're looking at your gas and your uh, temperature or your oil or some other gauges that are on your on your dashboard. You're looking at them. You want to find out what's it saying. Check them out. In Romans chapter fifteen thirteen, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy and peace in believing. Get the joy and peace going in your life. Well, we went on and We saw that revelation. Wisdom comes to tell us some things. First off, it tells us what we have received. It tells us what we can receive. It tells us what we will receive. Those are three different things. What I have received is not what I can receive. What I can receive is not what I will receive. Those are three different things. You need to find out what they're in. If you already have something, you shouldn't be asking God for it. If you can have something, then you need to know what God said to do for it. And if you will have something, if if it's in the future, then you have that hope. And you look to that thing. We have a place in heaven. We have a mansion even. The fourth was what is absent in our faith. Wisdom will come to show you what is absent in your faith. It will also show you what is present and in the way. Those are things you need to know. The wisdom of God will come to you to help you on those things. Last week we were looking... At the river, aspect of the river. The Bible calls us wells and it calls us rivers. We know they're different things. When we got saved, we were given a well. When we got filled with the Spirit, we become a river. The idea is to become a river. In a well, one person can receive at a time. It's there to serve, serve a number of people. Um, but one at a time. A river serves multiple people at a time. And it can serve mass amounts of people. That's what we want to become. We want to become a river. In First Kings chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can turn there. We're going to be in the the third chapter of 1 Kings today. You can look up on the screen, use your iPad, whatever it is that you prefer to do. But as I was looking this up, a lot of times I look up scriptures just to find out when we had gone over this before. And most of you are probably aware of this. Today marks the 24th year of the church. We started the first Sunday in February back in the year 1990. And this marks our 24th year. Of those 24 years, we have 16 of them. I can tell you exactly what we taught on any single Sunday or Wednesday. I can tell you the exact scripture that was used. I can tell you the exact examples that were used. I can Not all the examples, but I can tell you all the stories that we told on there. Sometimes if I tell a story, I just look it up on there and I find out, did I tell that story? I find out, oh yeah, 10 years ago I told that story. And then I pull, I pull it out and don't do it. So for the last 16 years, I can tell you, if you ask me what it was we taught on a particular Sunday, I can pull that up for you without uh, more than about 30 seconds of time going by. So I looked this up, First Kings chapter 3, to find out when the last time was that we taught it. And it's not in this the last 16 years. We've referred to this story a number of times, but we've not actually broken it down and gone into it in that time period. I know I've done it before, may have done it here, may have done it in other places. But we're going to get into this story here in First Kings chapter 3. It's a very familiar story to us, and we're going to break it down verse by verse and go through each of the verses here today. Now, Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Now, there are two ways of looking at Scripture. One, that whatever is in Scripture and the people did is good to do. The other is whatever is in Scripture is for us to decide whether it was good to do. Now, Solomon married; he made a treaty with Pharaoh and married his daughter. How many would think that's a good thing? Now it's not good to get in treaty with Egypt. God never likes it when, he, when Israel wants to go back to Egypt. He doesn't want them to be in treaty with Egypt. So is this a good thing that he has done? It is not a good thing that he has done. God has warned them, if you marry foreign women, they will lead you down a wrong road. It's not the, the fact that there are foreign women. The fact is that they are idolaters. He is fine with them marrying a foreign woman as long as they have converted and worship God. Yes, And there's people in the lineage of Christ who were foreign, but had worshiped God. But Pharaoh's daughter probably has not converted from her idolatrous ways. And they worshiped a lot of different gods at that time. So this is probably not a good thing. So we have the first verse here talking about Solomon. We're not getting off to a really good start. It doesn't say anything about it, but it doesn't It does get off to a good start. Now, keep that in mind, because that's an obvious one to us, but there's going to be something else that goes on in these verses that is not a good thing. The Word of God does at least outline it, but it doesn't tell you why. Meanwhile, verse 2, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. If you don't know what the high places are, I wrote this in your in your um, actually we, we have it here. We'll read it through in Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verse one. If you want to flip over there, fine. We're going to be back over in first Kings shortly. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God, your father, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you you shall dispose served other gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. This is where the other nations worship gods. He says, don't worship me there. Those places that are there, take them down. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. He's not just referring to the wooden carvings. He's talking about the foreign altars. He's talking about the high places. He's talking about the hills and the mountains and under every green tree. But you shall seek the place where the Lord, your God, chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. So when you seek after the Lord and bring sacrifices to him, that didn't mean that you can't pray at home. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the actual uh, formal part of going to God, bringing a sacrifice, seeking the Lord with a sacrifice, so forth. This is what you were to do. You were supposed to come to the place that he put his name in. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and your heave offerings, in your hand and vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of all your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, for as yet you have not come to the rest inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. Now, we run into this problem still to this day. People want to do what is good in their own eyes. How many of you know Christians who have decided not to go to church but to stay at home? And the reasons they give it is, well, I don't like what they do at church. I don't like the hypocrisy. I don't like the offerings. I don't give all this these different things or things that happen or people hurt me or people offended me and things like that. So they don't go to church. Sometimes you'll find some people who don't go to church, but they sit at home and they watch church on TV. Right? Well, I don't go to a formal church, but I have church at home. What's happening? People are doing what is right in their own eyes. Has God told him, "Thou shalt stay at home and have church"? <laughs> church involves people. It involves a group of people getting together to worship. People bring problems. God never said that those problems should keep you from being a church, did He? Now we're not talking to you guys because you all are here. <laughs> it's not the, but you know, you you talk to people like this and you wonder what you what can you do about it. They had this problem here, and God says, you all are doing this right now, you're all going to your own places, but that's not what I'm supposed, to, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. What I want you to do is I'm gonna have my name, I'm gonna pick a place in your tribes, and that's where my name's gonna be, that's where my stuff's gonna be, and when you come together, that's where you need to go. And so that's where they came together for their sacrifices and, and so forth. So we still do the same thing. You know, if, uh, if people who stay at home, they don't like what one preacher is, is teaching, is not rubbing them the right way, what do they do? They changed the channel. They changed it to someone else, which is the word of God also talked about. You will heap teachers to yourselves for your itching ears. That you have ears that, that you I only want to hear certain things. And so you pick those things out and you shall rejoice before the Lord, your God, and you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants and Levite, who is within your gates, since he has no position or portion nor inheritance with you. Take heed to yourselves that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place in which the Lord chooses in one of the tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Now, you've heard the thing before. You know, you go into a church, and as well, it's not perfect. It's not, well, of course, it's not going to be perfect. You're there. <laughs> and I mean that about me, too, not just you. <laughs> Whenever we show up at church, we are bringing imperfections with us. Each one of us has imperfections. Stop letting the imperfections of each other bother you and get into what we're supposed to be getting into. Iron sharpens iron. We're here to develop each other. We're here to help each other. Let that go on. So anyway, that's what they had done. That's why the, no matter where you go in the Old Testament, you will see a constant number of references to people who would sacrifice in the high places. If you wonder what that is, this is what it is. They may be worshiping God, but they are worshiping God in a wrong way. Understand, God is not happy even if you worship him in a wrong way. It does not mean he will not speak to you. But just because he speaks to you does not mean he approves of what you do. We're going to see that here in this story. It's very evident in this story. Now, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. Is this where he should go? Now, think about this. Which king is this again? Solomon. Solomon is the son of? Under the rule of David, where was the house of God? Now, the house had not, the actual temp, tabernacle or temple had not been built yet, but where did all the priests go? David took a particular city in which he put the priest and the worship of God, the Ark of the Covenant. Remember what city it was? Little little small town? No, it's not a big town. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He took Jerusalem. And moved everything there. So everything, of, of most well, most of the things of importance were there. The, the, uh, the ark was at Jerusalem. And this is where they were supposed to go. But he did not. Now, the reason for it was he went to Gibeon. Gibeon was kind of like, um, if you had a capital, it was sort of the, uh, here's a good, good thing. Phil, uh, Philadelphia is not the capital of Pennsylvania, though most people might think it is because it is the most well-known and biggest city of Pennsylvania. What is the capital? Harrisburg. Really? Harrisburg. That's our capital. You, you got Pittsburgh. you got Philadelphia. Much bigger cities. But the capital here is Harrisburg. Uh, amazing. Philadelphia was the capital of the entire country. It is not the capital even anymore of Pennsylvania. It's just a large city. So Gibeon is kind of like the secondary spiritual place of worship. If I put in some references into, in there. I'm not going to look them up now. But if you look them up, you're going to find out that the tabernacle and the bronze altar were at Gibeon. They set them up there. So he went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. Is this what God wants him to do? No. It does not mean you cannot pray or have a conversation with God in any other place. But it means if you're going to bring a sacrifice, where do you bring it? To the place, not places, but to the place where God says, of your tribes, I'm going to set things up, which is Jerusalem in the tribe of Judah. That's where you're supposed to go. Now, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. So he marries Pharaoh's daughter for a treaty. He goes to Gibeon to sacrifice. How are we doing? This is not a good start, is it? For that was the great high place. That was the great high place. Not the place God set up. Of all the high places, that was the great one. So he went to the best of the false places you're supposed to go. <laughs> Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that, a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. You gotta wonder, why don't you take this to Jerusalem? I don't know. Get to heaven, we can ask Solomon. What's up with that? We don't know. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. God said, ask, what shall I give you? Ask, he says, what shall I give you? Understand this is the mercy of God. It does not mean that he's in the right place. It does not mean he's doing the right thing. It does not mean he is off to a great start. But God still says, ask, what shall I give you? I want you to ask me something. And I want you to tell me, what is it that I can give you? Wouldn't that be a great, great thing? What shall I give you? Now, notice he doesn't say, what do you want? He didn't say that, did he? He didn't come up to Solomon and say, Solomon, what do you want? Made all the sacrifice. You brought a thousand uh, sacrifices here. What do you want? He doesn't say that. He says, what shall I give you? So he's made all the sacrifices. He's got God's attention, and God says, "What shall I give you?" What was Jesus' constant thing that he said to people? What would you have me to do for you? Doesn't ask people, "What do you want? What do you? What would you have me do for you?" And God says, "What shall I give you?" Now I put this in your outline if you didn't fill it in already. Even though God meets us at a place, does not mean God wants us in the place. <laughs> Understand that. Even though God meets us at a place, does not mean that God wants us in the place. Have you ever heard of somebody who got born again in a bar? In a strip joint? In the bad side of town? You know what? God will reach you wherever he can get you. It does not mean he wants you where you are. But he wants you saved. He wants you reached. He wants you brought in. God will go in some of the most despicable places to get his kids. Just think of it this way. What place would you go to rescue your kids? Would you look at it? Oh, that's kind of dirty. I don't want to go in there. Junior, can you come out? (laughs) No, we'd we'd go in, wouldn't you? We wouldn't be thinking about it too much. So verse 6, and Solomon said, you have shown great mercy. Now understand the contrast here. When God speaks to us, it's not very long, generally. When we speak to him, generally, it's a lot more wordy. God speaks in like one-sentence things here and there. Most of the time it's one-sentence stuff. Well, a few times you see it a little longer. But Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great, this kindness, great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you had made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am... A little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. That's an interesting opinion of himself. I don't know how to go out or how to come in. He's king. Most people that are king don't have this opinion of themselves. They have a little bit more inflated opinion of themselves. But this is his. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Would it be that all people that were leaders in the world would view the people they served as the people of God? Would it be, view the people that they served as someone outside of themselves? Would view it as someone who was not just there to get them the things that they want? But here we have Solomon. Your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. What was it that everyone knows that Solomon received? Wisdom. What does he actually ask for? Discernment and understanding. Remember, we brought these boxes out. The wisdom of God contains Understanding, understanding contains discernment. Any other wisdom is empty and it will not have these things. He asks for discernment and he asks for understanding. So Solomon responds, response shows first off his humility. If you're going to be a good leader, you need to be humble. Understands his foresight. And third, his desire, his humility. His foresight, he knew what was up. He knew what he was going to face. And his desire, his desire was to serve the people of God. His desire was to do a good job for the people of God, to help them out. Now I compare this to his, brother, his brother's attitudes. Amnon was the first one he came up to. Amnon was in love with his half-sister. And he conspired with a friend of his and they got this way and basically raped her. And then he didn't want anything to do with her. And Absalom was very mad at that. And his father took no action against, against Amnon. And Absalom rose up and killed him. And then Absalom was banished from the kingdom for a few years until they worked the thing out and he came on back. Uh, Absalom then tried to usurp the throne from David. He thought that he was ready. He thought that he was, was all that. And that he was better than David and looked at the things that David did as being weak and not as good. Even though David was anointed and gifted by God, Absalom saw an opportunity and he conspired for a number of years. Until he took the king, tried to take the kingdom, and he lost. Then there was Adonijah, who thought that the birthright should fall to him, and he wanted to be king. And when David was dying, instead of Solomon, though it had been said that Solomon would be the the king, Adonijah tried to take the throne. And his wife came to, Bathsheba came to David and said, Adonijah is trying to take the throne. You need to do something. So he made Solomon king in front of everyone, and Adonijah was was uh, stopped. But these are people in the same household have a different attitude. Don't just think just because your kids don't reflect the same attitudes that you do that you necessarily did anything wrong. Sometimes they just haven't responded right themselves. You do the best that you can. You put those things in front of them. But understand, your children will make their own decisions. So we see that Solomon's motivation for the request is the people. What a great way to His motivation for this is the people. In James chapter 4, verse 3, you probably know this scripture. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Too often our requests are not made in regards to the people of God, to the desires of God. They are made for our own desires and for our own pleasures. And James tells us that's why you ask and do not receive. It's because your motives are wrong. Verse 10, so he makes his request and then the Lord comes back and answers. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. So that there has been, there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. That's, uh, that's quite a statement. God gave him what he asked for. He asked for understanding and discernment. God says, I've given you wisdom and understanding. Of course, discernment comes with the wisdom of God. Verse 13, I have also given you what you have not asked. Because we serve a God who is more than enough. We serve a God who gives more. We don't always look at Him that way, but we serve a God who gives more. When God rained down manna on the children of Israel, did they have just enough? No, they had more than they needed that fell around. They were only supposed to take just enough, but they had more than was needed. When the fish fell into the or came into the net with Peter and John, how many fish did they have? Was it just enough? It was more than enough for the nets. The nets were breaking. They put them into the boats, and it was more than enough for the boats. If God has counted the numbers of the hairs on your head, do you not think he knew the capacity of those boats? Do you not think he knew the capacity of those nets? Well, actually, the net, they only put one in there. He knew that, didn't he? When God gives you over in abundance, he's basically saying, hey, that overage is your problem. When he fed five thousand from the few loaves and fishes, did they have more than enough? They had baskets full left over. When they fed four thousand, did they have just enough to get everybody taken care of? Now they had baskets full left over again. Because God gives more than enough. He doesn't he's not just a barely get along God. We gotta make sure when we ask him for things, we don't ask him barely get along things. So I've also given you what you have have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings of all your days. So if you walk, oh, we went from what you have, right, to what you can have. You see that switch? Told you, wisdom of God. When a revelation comes from God, it will tell you about things that you already have or things that you can have or things that you will have. So what he now has is wisdom. What he can have, so if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for his servants. What did he do? He got right. He went to the right place this time and offered the sacrifices at the right place. I don't know if God corrected him in that or, or, or he just, uh, woke up to it. Whatever it was, he left where he was making sacrifice to go to Jerusalem where he should have been making sacrifice. That's a change, isn't it? If, if you showed up at Gibeon and God gave you a dream, would you not just go out to the same altar you're at and offer sacrifice there? He did not. He left Gibeon to go to Jerusalem to get it right. He did get it right. But understand this. Even if we have not gotten everything right, it does not mean God will not speak to us. But oh, please keep this in mind. Just because God spoke to you does not mean everything is right. Sometimes Christians have this idea that, well, God spoke to me, so everything must be okay. No, (laughs) it's not. You listen to God. So he's got great wisdom now. Wisdom greater than all the people who have come before him and all that would come after him. He's got this great wisdom. So now what happens? One of the most well-known stories, you go on the streets in Philadelphia, in your town you live in, and you ask people about this story, and almost everyone knows this story. Solomon is the man of the greatest wisdom we're told in the Word of God. And we only know of one thing he did that was wise. Isn't that kind of odd? All we know is one story in which his wisdom worked. One. That's it. We know a story where the Queen of Sheba came and he talked to her about wisdom. We don't know anything that she asked or anything that he said. This is the only story we have where his wisdom was on display. The only one. I always thought that was odd. The wisest man. How hey, about we put a couple of stories in there. Jesus was the... Greatest healer had come on the earth at his time. Don't we have more than one healing story? He was the greatest teacher that ever come on the earth. And don't we have more than one teaching? Yeah. So we have Solomon, the man of the greatest wisdom, to be able to judge between right and wrong. And we got one story. One. And it really, it's not that great of a story. It's an okay story, but it's not that great of a story. We get one story. I don't know. I wonder why that is. We get more stories about the things he did that were foolish than the things that were done, he did that were wise. Now, two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. Well, that's kind of enlightening right there, the situation. I think it is utterly amazing that a king, with all the splendor that Solomon has around him, that of all the people in the kingdom who get to come before the throne and have their matter settled are two harlots, outcasts of society. Now Moses had set it up that there would be judges, of uh, uh, people of tens, people of hundreds, people of thousands. You would think that somehow they had to work through the system. They didn't just bring the matter up and it went right to the king. Somehow this had to work through the system and no one could figure out how to settle this thing. And that's probably why it came to the king, because it was the matter of a life of a baby. However it was, we may have to wait till we get to heaven to find out how this story made it in and how these two women are the ones that were talked about and how they got an audience with the king. Solomon is the third king. They kind of have it down as to how you treat kings. And you don't just let anybody into the chamber. Because some people want to hurt the king. So it's kind of guarded. Two harlots come in, stood before him. And one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. We were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. Well, they've identified a number of things about it. First off, these are two women. They don't have husbands. Their occupation is there a harlot. The children are born out of wedlock. They may not even know who the fathers are. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. I think it's actually quite amazing that the woman could sleep through all that. Because it seems that most women, once the baby stirs, I mean, you're <laughs> You're moving. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. So Now, we got it shortened there, but you know you got two women here fighting over the baby. They didn't just say it quite like this. Can you kind of hear how it went? went down they're talking over each other they're saying no it's not a church no it's not a church no it's yours it has and they start talking about this the the babies and the, the things that were, and my my son has a mark here and and or, or does this or whatever it might be and they're shouting back and forth and Solomon's sitting up there and says oh my <laughs> boy have we got a situation here we got two very angry women and the king said the one says this is my son who lives And your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king and the king said, divide the child in two. Give half to one, half to the other. Now, this might not be too far fetched because kings did stuff like this. Because who's going to bring a king to judge? Who's going to to judge the king? Now, we're set up in a system here. Well, we're supposed to have checks and balances. Our current president is bypassing those checks and balances. It makes me quite angry in what I hear him talking about wanting to bypass Congress. Anybody watch the speech last night, the other night? I did not. I did not watch it. I heard some of the things that were said. One of the things that struck me the most was when he stood up and said that he was going to bypass legislation. And the Congress applauded. Well, half of the Congress applauded. Half of those Congress people think they're irre- Irrelevant our constitution is set up that no president can pass a law by himself but a congress passes a law and a president signs it he's trying to it seems to me he's trying to make himself into a king we don't have a king we're not used to kings this is a king this king can decide to kill you and no one brings him to justice for him to bring out a sword And to threaten to kill a baby is a very real threat. It is not like it is today. If someone were to do that, you would say, you're kidding me. You're not actually going to do that. This is a real threat. Don't listen to this story and think that that woman thought at any moment that this baby was not going to be killed. This is how kings behaved. This is what they did. God warned them. When you have kings, they can be cruel. They will do some things you're not going to like. They're going to take your money. They're going to take your your daughters for wives. They're going to take your sons for service. They're going to do things that you're not going to like. And no one can stop them. So when he brings out this sword, everyone in the room, this is the new king. We don't know what he does. Everyone in the room is probably thinking, He is going to use that sword. He does not want this to be a problem. He's probably looking at these are two harlots. They come on in. They got these children out of wedlock. What do we care if we lose another one? Bring the sword in, cut it in half. We don't have any problem anymore. Send them on their way. That is probably how most of the people in the room are looking at this. And this threat of this baby being killed is very real to them. We may look at it like he's just bluffing. But the people there, they did not. That's how kings behaved. Where do we leave off? 25? And the king said, Divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. If you want to fight over it, we'll just... <laughs> Here you go. Now, of course, that half of, the, half of the baby is not going to be as worth worthwhile. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, give the first woman, the living child, by no means kill him. She is his mother and all Israel heard of the judgment which the king rendered and they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now, it is quite a, a, a good thing. And we all see, understand what he did. He tapped into the motherhood of the, of the child. And God gave him that insight to, to see that understanding and said, look, understand the heart of the mother. The heart of the mother does not want to see the child die, even if she cannot be the one to raise him. Remember Moses' mother? And what she did, even if I can't raise him. I would still rather him be alive. That's the heart of a mother. And so that's, that's how Moses was, was uh, uh, put into the house of Pharaoh. But it's, a, it's interesting this in a number of ways. First off, God took an interest in the matter of two harlots. Two people who were living a life of sin. God took an interest in a child who was born out of wedlock. If God has an interest in the live child here... Would you not also assume that he had an interest in the dead child? I would. If he has an interest in the one harlot's son, wouldn't he also have an interest in the other? But the other child died, didn't he? Was killed in the night when they rolled over and and smothered them. The people who teach that babies go because God takes them don't understand Scripture. God cared as much about the child who died as a child who is well. But things go on on this earth that God does not want, that God does not desire, and that God does not ordain. And that child dying was not God's part of it. It was their fault. They were doing things that they shouldn't have done. Apparently, you know, you don't sleep in the baby, with the baby in the bed. That's a thing we all know now that they had done it. They probably had uh, reasons to know that they shouldn't have done it. Whatever reason they were, they were doing that, they endangered the life of the baby, and the baby died. But he understands the heart of the mother. And so what he wants to do is to activate it. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. How would we solve this problem today? If two people came and said the same matter, we were in the house, we had a baby, the baby got switched. That's supposed to be my baby. What would we do? We would order DNA testing. Right, and so we have court orders to get DNA testing from both mothers, and uh, you know one mother might put up a, a block against it and have a have a lawyer, and they had to get through all that. But they finally got through, and and they got the DNA testing from both people. Then you got to do the DNA test, and of course, you know if you know from NCIS, it only takes five minutes. <laughs> No, it takes a. It takes a little longer than that, doesn't it? I think it takes a week or two, or doesn't it? It takes. It's not something that medical people. How long does it take, Ray? A few. It's a, it's a few weeks. It's not just a few days. It's a. It's a few. A... All right, but it's not going to happen the same day. We're not going to get it the same day. It's going to be down the road that we're going to get this. We're all kind of used to TV and and what's going on with that. And well, that's just not going quite quite going to be that quick so we would do all the dna testing and then when the dna test came back and we find out that this is the mother of the of the child of the child what would happen then there would be an appeal exactly there would be an appeal and the child all this time would be in foster care somewhere and uh, if the didn't work out in the first foster care he might be moved over to a second foster care and we don't know how well he would be taken care of in that foster care system but he would be in the foster care system while the uh DNA tests were being done and then while the appeal was being done and the the appeal comes back and it didn't go through and we decided to appeal again, we would be in courts for and it could go for months before this thing is even settled. And by the time the child who was an infant was taken from the baby, by the time the child is brought back and given to the mother, the child does not know who the mother is. Is that a good way? It's not a good way. But we think of a lot of times that we have improved society. With all of our neat things that we do, we have improved things. And here we would, if we were to take this situation, we would make a wreck of it. We would hurt the child. We wouldn't get the thing, we may not even get it right. How many times have we heard of situations, maybe not quite like this, but situations where, well, just because of legalities of it and because of the way things played out, the child has to go with the wrong mother. We would think that's un- unright. That's not right. That's an injustice there. But, but see, the wisdom of God will come in and the wisdom of God will help us to cut through red tape like nobody's business. And it'll help you. It will help you discern what is valuable, and what is not. It'll help you discern what is right and what is wrong. It'll help you understand how the thing works would understand, help you understand how you can bring this thing out into the light. The wisdom of God will do that if we just listen to him. Solomon listened to the wisdom of God and God's wisdom was able to work in a situation that most people would have thought is a throwaway. Two harlots, one with a dead son, one with a live son, who really cares? But God did. And God gave him the way to see through and to do this. All Israel heard about the judgment of the king. It's not because of the importance of the women. It's not because of the importance of the sons. It was because of the remarkable nature in which the decision came about. Now understand this. He was given wisdom. And then this situation came to him. And probably many others were just not told what they were. Probably many others came. Whatever we receive from God. How many of you believe that you have received something from God? A gifting, a talent, an understanding, an ability. You have something that you have received from God. Understand, whatever we receive from God will be tested. Whatever you receive from God will be tested or basically put to work. Whatever you receive from God, whatever God has given you as a gift, as a talent, as an ability, whatever God has put in your care will be tested or, put it this way, it will be put to work. Paul was given an understanding of the church age. Was it, put, was it tested? Jesus was given the ministry of prophet, priest, he was a healer. Was it tested? Whatever God gives you, it will be tested. Don't think it's strange. Because the enemy wants to take whatever was tested and get rid of it. Or whatever you have, he wants to test it to the point that you stop using it. That you stop working in it. He wants to put enough obstacles in your way that you quit. He wants to throw enough stuff up at Solomon that he thinks, "I I don't... want these decisions anymore. I don't remember dad ever having to deal with these things. I mean, they're coming out of the woodwork for this. It will be tested. Moses was given the ability to discern between situations and the line out his tent was huge every morning that he would sit in his chair and he would judge things from morning until night. And Jethro saw it and said, that's not the right way to do it. You need to change this up. Whatever we receive from God will be tested or basically it's going to be put to work. We are not given gifts just to be good at something. <laughs> God has not given you gifts just so that you, become, you can be good at something. You can say, hey, I'm good at that. Uh, that's, that's not it. If you got a gift from God. It's going to be used for the kingdom. When you use it for the kingdom, it's going to be tested. It's going to be tried. It's going to be put to work. It's alright. You're up to it. You got a gift. You're going to use that thing. Now the two women, they're harlots. They both had sons in the same way, out of wedlock, around the same time. God cared about both the women and the sons. I want you to take your order to a story, Mark chapter 6. You might not think this story is similar, but by the time we get done, hopefully you'll get to see that there are some great similarities in with this story. Mark chapter 6, verse 42. So they all ate and were filled. This is one of the feedings that they had done of the great uh, numbers of people. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Now counting the wives and the children. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he sent the multitudes away. So here's Jesus. We just got done feeding the 5,000. He administered. He had taught these people for a number, for a long time, and then fed them so they'd go on their way. He took his disciples. He put them in the boat. You guys get over and the other, you go over there. That's where we're going next. You guys go. Go over to the other side. He takes the multitude of people and he sends them away. Y'all need to go. I'm not feeding you anymore. You need to get out of here. You need to go. And he sends them all away so that he is by himself. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Who's with him? Nobody. He is by himself. He has ministered all kinds of teaching for a long period of time, fed everybody with this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and he decides what I need right now is to pray, but I need to pray alone. So he puts his disciples in a boat and he sends them off. He takes the multitudes and he sends them away, and he is there by himself. How many times? Well, I'll tell you what. Most Christians, when they need to pray, don't even know it. Most Christians mistake being tired with a need to pray. Because we're not tuned in to what our spirit needs. But if you get tuned in to what your spirit needs, you will find out, not only do I just, uh, I'm not just tired. My spirit is in need of something. I need to pray. And you will withdraw yourself from everybody else and you will pray. You will do some things to pray. And you will get built up and you will get strengthened. Jesus knows right now what I need is to Pray. But he also apparently has an engagement on the other side and he sends his disciples to it ahead of time. Many times we have come to the decision that even though I need to pray, even though I need to read the Bible, even though I need to study, even though I need to do some things in the realm of the spirit to build myself up, to get myself ready, I don't have time. How many times have we thought that or been in that? Well, I I need to get up early and pray. I need to stay up late and pray. I need to spend some time and study this topic. I need to do that, and we think I don't have time. We've done that often, so many times. Where we so much so that we're not listening to that need when God says you need to pray. You need to pray. And we turn it off and we don't go. And we wonder, why is it we get ourselves into trouble? Why did this bad thing, why did this situation, why did this decision come up and I I made the wrong decision? Why did this stuff come up? We don't know. So he stays back and prays. And he sent them away. He departed to the mountain to pray. The disciples, get this, understand, the disciples are in the boat. They are on the way to the next place they are supposed to go. Jesus is going there as well. They're on the way to the place they're supposed to go. The multitudes, they want want something. We don't care where the multitude went. They went home. Jesus has to get to where the disciples are going. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. They got halfway there. Isn't that where the middle is? So if you are in the middle, you are halfway home. We don't know if they struggled getting halfway there. We don't know if, This is just normal. Now when they, even they come, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was a, he was alone on the land. They're halfway across the sea. He is alone on the, this is real important. You gotta get this down. Get the picture of this. They're halfway on the sea. He is alone on the land. What has he been doing in the time that they've been halfway across the sea? Praying, they were busy getting themselves over there. He was praying. He needed to pray alone. he did send them on, on his way. Now, now, when even came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them, so they were having a little bit of a battle there, and they're all rowing, they're rowing hard. You might think, how many of you think right now Jesus is seeing them straining, he's feeling sorry for them? Man, look at that, they've got to work so hard, or they're rowing. How many of you think Jesus is feeling sorry for them? All right, let's go on. So he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he would have passed them by. Right? Which means he was alone on the land. They were halfway. They were straining. He saw them straining. He finished up what he was going to do. And about the fourth watch of the night, he set out to get to where he was going. He's walking on the water. And he made better time than they did in the boat. And would have passed them by, which means he would have been there and they still would have been rowing. And he probably would have had supper ready for them or something like that when they got there. Now, get the, get the picture of this. Jesus knew I needed to, I need to pray in order to be ready for what's on the other side. So he stays back and he prays. The disciples just get into the boat. And they go. I don't know if they argue with Jesus. Jesus, how are you going to get there? You don't have a boat. You're, we have the only boat. Don't worry about it. I got it covered. He walks on the sea and would have passed them by, which means, get this, doing, getting across on the sea the natural way with the boat is not as efficient as the way Jesus was going to do it because Jesus passed them. Would have passed them. He caught up with them and would have passed them by. Which tells us this. We all are doing a lot of things the hard way. And if we did things the right way, life would not be as hard as it is. If we could learn to stay back and pray, and we would get to the other side ahead of everybody else anyway, wouldn't we do it? And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, desire, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. Could the wind have ceased? When Jesus was not in the boat? Remember the time when Jesus was in the boat and the wind was going, and they woke him up, and he gets up in the thing and he says, Speaks to the wind. Peace. And the wind stopped, and the wave stopped. And he turns to them. He says, I'm real glad I was here to help you out. He didn't say that? What did he say? Where is your faith? Why aren't you doing this? Folks, we are taking on a lot of things the hard way. And Jesus is just saying, where's your faith? Why are you taking this on the hard way? You've been going through this so much better. Then he stood up in the boat into the boat with them and when ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. I, I imagine that means they were greatly amazed, but they didn't let it come out. You know, you can be greatly amazed about something and not say anything. Just like, oh, <laughs> but no, no words come out for they had not understood. So then he went up into the boat and, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not. Un- Understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. When they crossed over and they came to the land of Ganeset and anchored there, and when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and they ran through the whole region, whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to whatever they heard, wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or in the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. (laughs) They just touched the hem of his garment. I'm sure that the woman of issue of blood just heard that. And she developed a, a belief in her. Jesus knew this was coming. That people were going to bring all manner of sick people to him. And that he needed to be ready as soon as they got to the other side. And so after a great time of ministry he recharged his batteries and prayed so that he was ready for what was on the other side. God didn't want him to avoid what was on the other side. He didn't want him to avoid teaching the people in the wilderness. But just in between, get yourself ready and pray. Build yourself up. And when they came to the other side he was ready. Folks, too many times we have bypassed a time of prayer on the mountain or something similar to it in an effort to quickly row and get to the other side. Wisdom comes with understanding. Understanding comes with discernment. We have those things that go on. We can cut through and understand how to get stuff done faster, quicker. God wants you to be able to get things done quicker. Now, I put this in your outline here. In life, it does not matter how hard or how long you work. Does it? It really doesn't matter how hard or how long you work. It's the stuff you are getting done going to count. Is the stuff that you're getting done going to count? We all have jobs. And those jobs are, are monitored by getting certain things. If you are in sales, then the end of the day, what does that sales thing say? How many people came through? How many people did you help? How much stuff did you sell? Isn't that what, it, what matters? If you're into healthcare, care, how many people did you take care of that day? How many situations did you handle? If you're in a, a, a shop that's making things... How much stuff did you bring to finished product? Right? That's what matters. It does not matter all the other stuff that you do along the way. It does not matter the distractions. What matters is how much got done. That's what matters. And at the end of the day... That's what the boss is going to be looking at. You you might say, well, yeah, but we faced this and we had this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem. If every day all you come up with is problems, they want to see how much stuff are you getting done. And if you're getting a lot of stuff done where you work, then they're going to reward that because you got stuff done. Your boss wants you to get stuff done, stuff that counts. You know, if uh, if uh, you got a, a player like Allen Iverson on your basketball team, what what matters to people is not necessarily how many baskets he scores. What matters is how many people want to come and watch him. That's what matters. He may want to look at it and say, look at all the baskets I scored. And what, what management says is, how many people want to come and watch you? That's what matters. we got to sell tickets. In your work, you need to find out what matters. Wherever it is that you work, you need to find out what matters. When you find out what matters, get it done. Get those things done. Because you'll find out a lot of time in your day, you may be spending 8, 10, 12 hours in the day, and you may only get two hours of work done. Three hours of work done. What matters is what's getting done. What's, what's happening for you? What's getting done? God's wisdom will show us how to get done what matters quicker. God's wisdom will do that for you. He will show you how to get done what matters quicker. And if you get done more of what matters, then people will reward that. You know, we're, we're trying to make these particular items, and when we have this person online, we get double. What matters is, what's getting done? When, when I used to work over at the horse riders place, when, the few times I would come in and I'd work on the production line, I knew what mattered on the production line. You know what mattered on the production line? How many cases are you getting done? We kind of things by cases. And so uh, I would get to the production manager. I knew I was going to be there the whole day. What was our, what's our current record for how many cocktail sauce we got done in a day? And he would tell us, you know, I, I don't know what the number was. It's, I've forgotten by now, but, um, he would tell us how many cases. All right. And we'd set that up as a number. And we'd set out to, to get that number beat. We're going to get the, more of that number. When I was out in the road selling, I knew how much dollars I sold on the route the year before, on the same week, and also the week before, I knew all kinds of and I, my goal was, let's beat that. Let's sell that more. We know what matters. When I get all done, they don't care about how hard I worked, how far I took the packages, how much I, up, how I loaded, or, or what they care about is, how much did you sell? What matters at your job? You need to find out what matters and get it done. And God will give you wisdom on how to do it. He's going to help you out. He will help you. Get it done. Listen to God. If you've got a situation at work, you want to get promoted, you want to get whatever, an increase, a raise, find out what is it that matters at this job. And then go to God and say, God, I need wisdom. Tell me how I can make this happen more. How I can make more, how I can do more, how I can get. Because that's the thing that matters. How can I get that to increase? And God will give you wisdom on how to get that thing to increase. Now, it is not just in the area of of finances and your job and, and things like that. It's also in other stuff. We talked before about the power of revelation and how that can work in the area of healing. God wants to heal you. God wants to help you. God wants to grow you. He wants to do all these things, but you've got to help him. Sometimes we get this notion, it's a religious notion, that God has a particular way he wants to heal you, and that's hogwash. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't believe it. God does not care how you get healed. He wants you healed. God is not in the business of healing people. He's in the business of growing people. That's what He wants to do. Your healing, your sickness, is a holdback. He wants to get that out of the way. You don't understand the business of God. God is not up there counting how many people He healed, He looks at how many people have we saved? How many people are we making disciples? That's what counts to God. Get people saved. Make them into disciples. Not healing. Not all this other stuff. That's trivial stuff that gets in the way. Oh, they're sick. They're, they're heavy. Get, let's get that taken care of. And God does not care how you get healed. With the woman of issue of blood, it was not that the only way she could be healed or the way that God ordained her to be healed was the way that she did it. What was the fact is she got her faith around something. If I just touch the hem of his garment, I know I shall be healed. We just saw in the story some other people had. They just touched the hem of his garment and they got healed. If I can just sneak up and I just do that, just the same way they got healed, I can do this, I can get healed. She got her faith around that. If you are facing something in your life, you need to find something. Listen to God. Hear from God. God will speak something to you that you can get your faith around. Oh, I can believe that. might be a stretch, but I can believe that. And God will come through. But don't just sit there and say, well, I hope that God moves somehow. I'll just go out here and we'll just... No. What is it that you want God to do? When people came up to Jesus, and they, He'd say, what do you want me to do for you? Well, just help me any way you can. No. What do you want Him to do for you? Get your faith on it. Whatever it is that He's saying, get your get your faith around it. That's, that's how we can do it. That's how we can do it. Some of you, it might be, Father, I can get my faith around getting healed if I go to the doctor, if I get an operation, if I get this work done, if I get this procedure done. Some of you can get your faith around if, I, if so-and-so or if someone just comes in and lay, lays hands on me, I know I'll receive it. Some of you can say, Father God, I'm to use. The, I believe I can just use the name of Jesus and this thing will go. Whatever it is, just get something to get your faith on. You need to have something that you get your faith on that revelation comes to you. Because God wants you to get it done quick. He wants you to get it back to the work of the kingdom. The work of the kingdom is getting people saved, making people disciples. That's the work of the kingdom. That's what counts. You can get into the kingdom sick. But it's a whole lot better if you go in there well. If you live this life well. That's what God would prefer that you do. But that's the that's the goal of the kingdom. What's the goal of your life? What counts? What matters? The talents that God has given you? Are they coming under test? You got some tests going on? That's all right. It's normal. Are you focusing on what God wants? Are you getting done what God wants to do? Are you listening to God when God speaks to you about what you're doing? Because for some of us, our focus when our job has been wrong. We're focusing on the wrong thing. And every time we get these things done, you think that your, your job is to talk to people and make everybody feel good about working there. But that's not what your boss feels. And you may go through the day and help three or four people in their situation. That's great. But that didn't help you with your overall goal. Listen to God. God will speak to you about some things to help you get it done. There is a good way, and there's a better way to get some things done. The Word of God has some wisdom for us on that. Would you all stand up with me? We have Communion Sunday here today. We're going to receive the elements because this is a representation that God says, I have a better way. In the Old Testament, people brought sacrifices to a particular city, a place where I put my name he says, i got a better way for that. I'm going to make one sacrifice for all of you. And all you have to do is receive it. I'm going to put all sickness and disease on my body. And this way, you don't have to bear it. He says, i got a better way. Too often, Christians are out there. We're trying to reinvent what God has already done. Understand, our God has made a better way for us. It's there for us to, to walk in there for us to do. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this represents my body which was broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me because too easy is it for us to forget what God did and begin to do it ourselves. Christians all over the world think their sickness, their disease, their infirmity, is their cross to bear. And they say, we'll bear it willingly. And we'll do what God says we need to do. It's not what God said. We're not following after what the boss has said. Let's so listen to the boss. He's our boss. He's a good boss. He loves us. Steered us down a good direction, good place to go. Has everybody been served? As we eat this together, the Word of God says that when we come together for communion, we judge ourselves so that we aren't judged. Make sure you keep your heart right. It doesn't mean that everybody loves you. It just means, as far as you're concerned, if anybody who's done you wrong came up to you today and say, I'm sorry, you'd forgive them. That's all. You would, if you ever say, well, I don't care what they say. They come up to me, I'm not forgiving them. Uh, that's not the right attitude. No, you need to change that one. You need to make it right. As we eat together, let's remember, on His body is put our sickness, our disease, our infirmities, so that we do not have to bear them. It doesn't mean that you won't bear them or that it's automatic. It means you don't have to bear them. As we eat together, let's remember what He did. On the same night after supper, He took the cup and said, this represents the blood of the new covenant. The old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats covered up sin. The blood of Jesus washes it away. Don't ever let the enemy put you in a mentality that says your, wa- your, your sins have been covered up. They have not been covered up. They have been washed away. They have been cleansed. You stand before the Father, righteous and clean. Let's remember what he did for us on the cross. Susan has a praise report. I hurt my foot Thursday night. Um, by Friday night, I was in severe pain. Uh, she, yeah, she called over to the house and she, and her and I, we prayed, uh, over the phone. And, uh, the next morning, I woke up pain free. Wow. That's good. That's, <laughs> that's And Susan also has, uh, uh, my two, two latest books are coming out in print. This month. I thought the one was already in print. One more. Oh, the two. Okay, great. So we've got two more coming out in print. That's always a, a good thing to to see. So that's uh, that's happening. Uh, I guess God only worked in Susan's life this week, so we'll have to see if we'll <laughs> help out the rest of us here during the rest of the, the time. Remember, write down whatever it is that God's doing. Nothing's too small. Don't ever think that anything's too little. Um, God. It just helps people to know that God's God's busy. God's working. I know God was working some of the other lives. I mean, sometimes we just don't think to write it down, or we didn't remember until after. Oh, I should have written this down. And as you get things during the week, if you want to put them up on Facebook, text them over, a uh, thing like that, we'll make sure that we have them in here for uh, for everything on the on the day. But we're going to set up here for the.